0: This is Endourology Soundbites, a new podcast series from the publisher of the Journal of Endourology and Video Urology in cooperation with the Endourological Society. This series is brought to you by Richard Wolf, a global leader in endoscopy since 1906. Richard Wolf delivers solutions that are improving patient outcomes and shaping the future of minimally invasive surgery. For more information, please visit richardwolfusa.com. Hello, this is Brian Matlaga, the Associate Director of Education for the Endourological Society, and I would like to welcome you to this installment of the Endourology Soundbites podcast series sponsored by Richard Wolf. In this episode, Dr. Ogis Shaw from Columbia University will share with us how he performs endoureterotomy. This is a brief overview of how I manage ureteral strictures, typically with an endourologic approach. Ureteral strictures are one of the major issues that we deal with in endourologic surgery. And they can occur quite frequently when there are issues that happen in the urinary tract that lead to development of scar tissue. They can happen from impacted stones, which is what we see commonly in endourology practices. They can happen when there's perforations that occur in the ureter. They can occur when extravasation occurs. They can be a side effect from dilation of the ureter that can occur with both balloon or serial dilation. And we get very concerned when there's thermal injuries to the ureter as well. That can happen both from laser technology or cautery effect. One of the other major issues for ureteral stricture formation is when we operate in previously radiated fields. So patients that have had radiation for other types of malignancies or other sorts of reasons will be at higher risk of developing strictures iatrogenically when we perform urologic procedures on them. So when we have to deal with a ureteral stricture, there are many complicating factors because the success rate of dealing with them is really dependent on the mechanism of how it occurred or the etiology of the stricture, and then also based on the length and location of the stricture. Ureteral strictures have unusual presentations for the most part. They sometimes will have flank pain. They quite often will happen when patients have urinary tract infections for unexplained reasons and have had prior intervention or prior stone disease. But the problem is that a lot of the cases are asymptomatic meaning that the patient does not have any presenting symptoms and is noted quite often on imaging studies. This is where controversy occurs when you perform an endo procedure or when patient has a history of stone disease that may or may not have passed or was treated. There is a small role of silent obstruction that occurs. And when you have silent obstruction, quite often this stricture would be undiagnosed and that could lead to loss of kidney function on that side. The controversy lies in that if patient has an uncomplicated urologic procedure or uncomplicated stone course, should they really undergo routine imaging? And some experts recommend routine imaging on everyone that has had procedures such as this, and at the minimum, some sort of imaging study that would demonstrate whether the patient developed hydronephrosis of their kidney, which would be a sign of a stricture potentially developing. And that rate of stricture or silence obstruction is somewhere in the 0 to 4% range. There are other physicians and urologists that are experts in this field that recommend that all patients don't necessarily need to be imaged, only more complicated cases, cases where patients had the impacted stone or had a perforation of their ureter and during the procedure. And those patients should be imaged, and then the rate probably of stricture formation is a little bit higher, but you would not be wasting resources on imaging patients that did not have any evidence of a complication or a difficult procedure. The stricture management is where more of the technical aspects of these types of procedures and etiologies become very important. The really relevant areas of ureteral stricture management are based on the location of the stricture. Is this in the proximal ureter or ureteral pelvic junction region? Is this in the mid-ureter? Is this in the distal ureter? Or is it in the area of the ureterovesical junction? And urologists that perform a lot of these procedures find that the success rates of these types of procedures vary based on the different locations, probably with higher success rates in the more distal portions of the ureter and lower success rates in the higher and the more proximal portions of the ureter. The length of the stricture is also very important. Typically, the highest success rates of an endourologic approach for these types of strictures occurs in strictures that are less than one centimeter in length. There's probably some moderate success in strictures that are one to two centimeters in length and really very poor success rates by an endourologic approach for strictures greater than two centimeters in length. Quite often, these strictures that are longer require reconstructive procedures or chronic stenting or nephrostomy tube in very complex cases for management of the stricture in the long term. But most often, if we can manage it endourologically and lead to improvement in function and improvement in obstruction, that is the way to go for probably about half of these types of cases. And the other half really should be managed with a reconstructive type of procedure to not have to have the patient live with a stenture nephrostomy tube for the rest of their life. The etiology is also very important on the stricture. Was it due to an impacted stone? Was it due to a perforation of the ureter? Or was it due to something like radiation therapy where strictures can get quite complex and reconstructive procedures are quite often needed? And then the last thing that probably matters is prior management of the stricture. Once you've had a failed endourologic procedure, it's usually best to move on to a more reconstructive type of approach so that you don't have to keep on stenting the patient. If the success was not high on the first approach, it probably will be even less successful the second time around and probably will lead to even more scarring of the ureter, leading to a longer area of stricturing, possibly leading to a larger type of reconstructive procedure necessary. As far as management of these ureteral strictures, there are quite often many different approaches on how to deal with this. The endo procedures, which I specialize in, is typically managing these types of strictures by either some sort of balloon dilation procedure, an endo which we most often perform with a homeum laser technology, or some Combination approach of those two. What happens if these types of approaches do not have success? Then, really, you're leading more toward a reconstructive type of procedure or auto transplantation of the kidney. From the simplest types of strictures that are in the distal to mid ureter, quite often a ureteral reimplantation can be performed. And we typically perform these in a robotic fashion or laparoscopic fashion at our institute. You can do a uretero ureterostomy, which is basically excising the segment of the stricture and then putting these two pieces back together of the ureter, usually best in mid and proximal ureteral strictures and typically for strictures that are less than 2 centimeters in length. You can perform an ileal interposition or some sort of bowel interposition, sometimes even using the appendix. And these ileal interpositions are obviously more complex than a primary repair but have very high success rates. It does lead to contact of urine with bowel, and this can lead to a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis and these patients need to be monitored for this type of problem postoperatively there's also ureteral which is used for proximal ureteral strictures that will be resected or transected at the proximal ureteral region and then reconstructed to the lower pole calyx of the kidney which part of the procedure is a hemine nephrectomy or removal of the lower portion of the kidney in order to anastomose the ureter to the lower pole and then newer technique that's being used quite oftenly and done both in robotic and open fashion are buccal ureteroplasties, which is where you use buccal mucosa to either bridge the gap of the ureter where the reconstructed procedure needs to be done, or quite often where you incise the ureter and by splaying it open, we're able to lay over buccal mucosa and create a tubular type of effect to reconstruct the ureter. And this is quite often done by a lot of our reconstructive surgeons using similar principles of treating urethral stricture disease And similarly, they've been shown to have high success rates in these limited series with buccal ureteroplasty. And then the last way to manage this was a chronic stenting or a nephrostomy tube in the worst case scenario. These are like chronic management techniques, and these stents need to be changed approximately every 3 to 12 months based on the type of stent that's used, and depending on whether the patient is developing any sort of encrustation of the stent, worsening symptoms from the stent, if the stent is failing, or is forming stone disease or getting encrusted. The most common procedure that we perform for these ureteral strictures, though, happen to be balloon dilation or endoureterotomy. Balloon dilation typically works best in strictures that are in the distal ureter, usually best in strictures that are less than 1 centimeter in size in a non-radiated field. There's controversy as to what size balloon is usually the best type of balloon, and these are usually used for like simple type of strictures or in combination with an endoureterotomy in our practice. The typical balloon size that we use to treat these strictures is typically 15 French or 18 French. And we tend to use shorter balloons if possible four centimeters or six centimeters in length and the burst pressure of this balloon is usually brought up to about approximately 12 centimeters of water pressure sometimes higher pressures in order to allow the wasting wasting w-a-i-s-t-i-n-g wasting of the balloon to disappear if the stricture is refractory to balloon dilation alone or is much more dense than balloon dilation can treat by itself quite often we combine it with endo which is usually used with a laser and this is basically incising the stricture in one area of the stricture to open it up, and usually the incision is carried out to the level of fat so that fat is visible in the periureteral tissue. We typically combine these two treatments, and if the stricture is so tight that you can't pass your scope through the stricture, then quite often you require a balloon dilation before you actually even perform the endoureterotomy. But if your stricture is small enough yet capacious enough to pass a scope through it, Quite often, we start with the ureterotomy and typically go from the proximal portion of the stricture down to the distal portion of the stricture, including a few millimeters above and below so that you get a clean plane of incision. Depending on the different areas of the ureter, it will help you determine where is the best place to incise if possible in order to minimize bleeding and optimize your outcomes. So the direction of the incision, you'll see quite often if you look in a textbook or you look in one of the articles that we've written about endo and dilation techniques, quite often you'll see the location of the stricture and you'll see exactly where we decide to incise. So in the proximal part of the ureter, we typically will incise the ureteral stricture posterolaterally. This is in order to avoid the blood supply that's coming to the ureter from the more medial aspects of the urinary tract. Then over the common iliac vessels, we typically will incise anteriorly. In the area of the internal iliac vessels, we'll typically incise anteromedially. And if the stricture is the area of the ureterovesical junction, the incision is typically made anteriorly. We typically will use an holmium laser fiber, and our most common size is 200 micron, or approximately the smaller caliber fibers. If it's in the proximal to mid ureteral region, we use flexible ureteroscopy, and in the distal ureteral regions, we'll typically use a semi-rigid ureteroscope. The incision is made in one clean line, if possible, carried out through the mucosa and through the scar all the way out to the level of fat. And when fat is seen, that's usually where you can terminate your incision. Our typical laser settings that we use for making the incision are approximately 1 joule and 10 hertz in order to make the incision. It quite often require multiple passes of the ureteroscope up and down the same plane of the uh, stricture to open up the area of the stricture. After the stricture is been opened and the incision looks clean, We typically will remove the ureteroscope and then perform a balloon dilation of that same region in order to expand that vision so that we will hopefully allow the ureter to heal open. This balloon dilation is again usually performed with a 15 French or an 18 French balloon dilator and typically bridges the gap of the ureteral stricture. So typically we use a 4-centimeter or 6-centimeter balloon depending on the length and location of the stricture. The stricture looks like it opens up nicely and the wasting is now gone are typically considered a successful procedure as far as the endo ureteronomy and the balloon dilation. And the next step is placing a ureteral stent in order to bridge the gap and ideally allow the urine to flow through without causing a lot of reaction and causing a lot of extravasation of urine in that area and allowing the area to heal. Our typical time period that we leave stents in postoperatively is usually about four weeks. to allow complete healing of the ureter. There is some data that's out there that the ureter will typically heal within one to two weeks. We ideally try and place two stents side-by-side in a tandem fashion in most of these cases. So if the ureter is capacious enough, there is some limited data that's out there that shows that two stents lead to better outcomes than just one stent alone. So if we're going to place two stents, it'll usually be two six French stents placed in a tandem fashion in the ureter, extending all the way from the renal pelvis down to the bladder. When we place these stents, we place them simultaneously, so we have two wires in position, And then we place the two stents simultaneously up from the renal pelvis to the bladder and confirm everything from the procedure fluoroscopically and cystoscopically to have the curls in the appropriate places. If the ureter seems like it's too tight and the problem with placing one stent at a time is that when you're placing the second stent, the first stent may migrate upwards, making it very difficult to extract in the future. But if it has to be done this way, then we sometimes will leave the tether on the first stent to prevent it from moving upwards or northwards into the kidney or into the proximal or mid-ureter. And we place the second stent simultaneously and then we take the tether off and remove it while holding the stents in position with a grasper. But typically, we will place the stents tandem simultaneously. Much easier to do in women than in men just based on urethral anatomy, but very safe to do. Now, if the ureter seems too tight to be able to handle two stents, quite often we will use one stent and the one stent will typically be an eight French stent which will be a larger size stent, but hopefully will allow the ureter to heal in a more open fashion. And then the last technique that we use sometimes when placing the stent is we'll use an endopilotomy stent, which is typically 7 French on one side and 14 French on the other side. And if the ureter is capacious enough, if we're dealing with a ureteropelvic pelvic junction or proximal ureteral stricture, we'll place the stent in the appropriate endopilotomy fashion with the 14 French side on the superior aspect of the ureter and the proximal ureteral region with the seven French portion being in the distal ureter. But quite often if you're dealing with a distal ureteral stricture, some of the urologists that specialize in this will invert the stent and use an inverted endopilotomy stent with the 7 French portion being in the proximal ureter and the 14 French portion being in the distal ureter. The one problem with these stents is they're quite stiff, and patients will potentially complain about the discomfort of these types of stents, though they probably do have a slightly higher success rate, in my opinion, compared to a single stent. Again, our technique of choice at Columbia is typically to use tandem stents whenever possible in these ureteral strictures to maximize our success rates, and we've found that these success rates are better with the tandem stent in our personal practice. Quite often, if the incision is carried out through the fats the way that it should be, some urologists recommend leaving a catheter in for a day or two to allow the ureter to heal to prevent extravasation and to minimize dent discomfort for the first couple of days. Our practice is to do that if we're making a large incision. However, if we're making a very small incision in the ureter for a very short structure, quite often we do not leave a catheter postoperatively and we see how the patient does in the immediate postoperative period. Again, we leave the stent in for approximately four weeks, then we take the stent out. We know what the baseline imaging has shown in the patient, and quite often the imaging post-stent removal is done approximately four to six weeks afterwards to show that there's been a decrease in the hydronephrosis, and then to reassess potential for obstruction. Our typical imaging study will be an ultrasound approximately four to six weeks after the stent is removed. If there is decrease in hydronephrosis, decrease in potential symptoms, and a good ureteral jet from that side, we quite often will be following the patient with ultrasonography, If the results are equivocal on the ultrasound or we need further information or the patient is still symptomatic, we quite often will move into a contrast-enhanced imaging study or a renal scan or a nuclear renogram with Lasix to try and assess for obstruction and degree of function. If you have a poorly functioning kidney overall, but a kidney that you're still trying to salvage, suppose the function is probably less than 15 to 20% but still salvageable. Quite often, a lax renal scan will not give you all the results that you need and sometimes will require actually re-intervention or repeat ureteroscopy to assess the stricture directly to make sure that it is open and that there's no restricturing occurring. And if there is restructuring, quite often you would need to move on to a more reconstructive type of procedure if the kidney seems like it is salvageable. That is the basic management of a uretal structure in an endorheologic fashion. Hopefully, this information was helpful. Success rates of these types of procedures are typically in the 50 to 70% range. The problem with some of this data is that it's short term data. There's not been any very long, longitudinal studies that have been done more than three years that are out there, but typically, in the short term studies, the success rate seems to be pretty good. And again, the success rates are likely the highest for strictures that are less than one centimeter in length, and this is in strictures that have been managed with both balloon dilation, where alone the success rates are probably slightly lower, versus ones where endoureterotomy plus or minus balloon dilation are performed where the success rate is, in my own experience, tends to be a little bit higher, approaching the 70 to 80% range in short-term follow-up. If you do have longer strictures and they're unsuccessfully managed by an endo plus or minus balloon dilation, it is usually best if the patient is a good candidate for it to move on to a reconstructive type of procedure that we discussed earlier. And these are quite often performed by the urologist that are the more of the endoscopic surgeons, but quite often are performed by the reconstructive urologist in your department or in your area. Hopefully, that is a good summary of our endo management of ureteral strictures. Thank you.